this is the way I think of physics, right? I'm an experimentalist, which means to me I'm an explorer. I, I'm happy to yeah. listen to the theories and they they can give you some guidance about maybe where to go look next for something. But in the end, it's the going looking that I really care about. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 181. And this episode is with John Butterworth, who is professor of physics in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at University College London, where he works on the Atlas experiment, a very cool name for an experiment, at the Large Hadron Collider near Geneva, Switzerland. And in this episode, John teaches me all about the Large Hadron Collider, which sociologically speaking, I, well, which sociologically speaking didn't work at all the way that I had thought it did. And then we talk about the standard model of particle physics, how it connects to quantum field theory, uh, before moving on to the Higgs boson and the search for the same. So John's book on the subject is called Most Wanted Particle, the inside story of the hunt for the Higgs uh, the heart of the future of physics, and you can find the link to that in the description. Reviews, comments, likes, all of these things are always appreciated, and there is now a Patreon for ad-free listening, show notes, and transcripts. And I will also apologize for Pins, who was a bit of a beast in the last few minutes of the episode, but by now, most of you are used to that occasionally. And one last thing. So since I'm taking over some of the editing duties now, I'm wondering if you video watchers, whether on Spotify or YouTube, enjoy this format that I think I will be trying in this episode, though I haven't edited it, edited it yet, where it's picture in picture and the larger picture, well, both pictures, I suppose, are alternating depending on who's speaking. And I much prefer this to the side-by-side -side view because it's more dynamic and you can see the whole frame of the speaker. And I like that you can still see both people, which I don't like when it just switches from one camera to the other. So let me know in the comments what your thoughts are on this since it will, if there's a, a an outsized response in one direction or the other, that might influence the way that I do the editing going forward. But now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with John. Just to give you a, a little debriefing as, as we begin, the the bulk of the physics that has been discussed on the show so far has been, I'd say, on the one hand, on the interpretations of quantum mechanics, and then on the other hand, uh, string theory and quantum gravity and black holes and this sort of thing. So the standard model of particle physics 
itself hasn't really been explicitly addressed at all. But before we get into it, I wanted to ask how you first got into it, how you first got into the standard model. Okay. Um, so it depends how, wait, wait, how far to go back. I mean, <laughs> I think the, uh, the, there are two things as a kid that got me into doing, I guess, research and physics as, as the main thing. Does that, do you want to go back that far? Is yeah, that yeah, let's go. Okay, so I remember when, when I was, um, I guess, about 10 years old, and my brother is a few years younger than me, and, and with a friend, we decided we'd write a book on the whole of space, or everything mm -hmm. in space, right? Um, I think by the, we mainly meant the solar system at the time. We didn't really know the difference. But we started doing it, and if I got my dates right, and my memory serves correctly, then it was, I think, Voyager was up there. So we made we made a contents page with all the planets and all the moons, and while we were doing it, like every week, we were having to add more moons, and and we and yet of course we gave up. It was one of those kid projects. We never wrote a word of it apart from the content mm -hmm. page. I don't think, but the idea that there was stuff that no one knew, and you couldn't find in books, was just and it was being added to, was my first feeling that I want to do that. I want to be the first person to find a new thing find out a new thing about nature to and, and the thrill of the fact that the sum of human knowledge was growing and maybe i could contribute to that was really that stayed with me from that moment it was that excitement of knowing that all the books were wrong because today this this thing found a new moon man jupiter or whatever it was and i can't even remember the moon i'm not that interested in moons but I, this idea of new information coming in and, and research the idea of what research was really sunk in and I was before I, I wasn't particularly physics or anything. It was just that to me is almost more important than what you research is is the fact that you're doing you're finding something new out about the way the universe works. And I thought that was great. And then a bit later on, when I was doing maths, my uh, maths A level, which in England is a, a thing you do kind of pre no, it was, it was O level, which dates me in England anyway. Um, but it's kind of you do when you're 15, 16 years old, kind of high school stuff. And um, the uh, my maths teacher was teaching us how to differentiate, and we were measuring lines on curves and taking the gradient. And he said, so she kind of secretly at the back, he said, if you um, if you if we're doing x squared, and if you make it two x, it's always two x. The answer for the gradient of x squared is always two x. Just a simple bit of differentiation, which I, I know is not that simple, maybe, but it, it it wasn't that simple when we were sixteen for sure. But this, and then the idea I got from that was that somehow maths was a kind of cheat sheet to the way the universe worked, and mm. I think physics is really bringing the maths and that research idea together, and that's really where my love of of particle physics, if you like, came in, and. In a way, the standard model and, and the maths that lay behind the postulation of the Higgs boson um, is, is that is that ad absurdum almost. And, um, and yet the connection with reality that you build an experiment, you go and look, you don't just think about it and do the maths, you go and connect it to the way the universe really behaves is also and, and find out is, is also really important. So those two things were what set me on the path, if you like. Um, and then 
I, I don't know how the rest of it. I wasn't always like fixated on on research or particle physics, but those things stayed with me through um, all my student days and things. And then much later on, I was already doing a PhD in particle physics, and I did a my PhD was was working on an experiment in Hamburg. Um, which was called Zeus, and it was going to collide electrons and protons together and study the internal structure of the proton. But one of the things, and I was working on the technical side of like building the event selection and the electronics and things that would help this thing work, which is fine. Um, I, programming is kind of my, my technical skill, I guess, that I contribute to particle physics. And, um, and on, as an aside, I did a, a study of a beyond the standard model idea, some new physics, a leptoquark it was, or, or a supersymmetric particle, actually, that looked like a leptoquark. And uh, I wrote a little simulation for that and blah, blah. And, of course, we didn't find it. It was kind of fun, a fun thing to look for, but we didn't actually find it. And so when I started doing a postdoc after that, I thought, well, I've had enough of, of studying things that aren't there. I want to go measure what's actually there. I want to go do standard model measurements. And that's where I kind of got into my research career. It was mostly been measuring the prediction, what, what the standard model, compare, measuring things and comparing to the predictions of the standard model. And that's, so that's the much later step, if you like. That's why I'm not a, beyond the standard model theories that's why I'm, I'm that's why i'm an experimentalist looking at measuring things and and measuring the standard model at some level when you talk about this book that you uh, planned on writing it reminds me of stephen wolfram and these these books that he would write as a a, a youngster and you could have been on that prodigious path had you uh, <laughs> kept at yeah. it but then this interest you had in discovery at a young age is uh, an apt tale to tell because it foreshadows your role that you mentioned uh, with Atlas and making a, a serious empirical discovery of the Higgs boson. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Yeah. And then one other thing you said that stuck out at me is this idea of math as a cheat sheet to the mm -hmm. universe. And the, as it's called in the philosophical literature, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in yeah. physics is, is a question that I'm quite interested in, but okay. Yeah. Now, now getting back to, to some, some questions, two things. One, you mentioned the, that your work involves testing or testing the predictions of the standard model. So first I think we should talk about what, the standard model is quite broadly. And then second, you also mentioned that you studied the collision of protons and electrons in the Zeus experiment. Yeah. And collisions play a tremendous role in the exploration of the empirical exploration of particle physics. And I don't think it's obvious why that is to the lay person, why collisions are so important. So first, what is the standard model just roughly and, and why are collisions so important for studying it? Sure. So the standard model is essentially it's a a body of knowledge, a body of theory that that um encapsulates what we I guess it's the answer we have at the moment. So imagine imagine Starting with any piece of material, asking yourself this question, which people, people have done, some strange types of people in the past. If you start with any material and you break it in half and you break it in half again and you break it in half again and so on, how, you know, 
take the Zeno's paradox or whatever. <laughs> go, go, keep chopping it as far as as much. The question is, does that process ever stop? Is it, do you reach an indivisible component of nature? And if so, or does it just carry on forever? And and if so, if you do stop, do you stop in the same place wherever you started from? Okay, so do, are there? So that in, the bottom line is, are there a certain set of fundamental, if you like, indivisible constituents of nature? And of course, you know, we've had ideas about this. About you know, the atom was first postulated as a an indivisible constituent of nature. We know now that it's not indivisible, but still a reasonable good model for for a lot of physics, a lot of science, a lot of nature. And the particle physics is really just pushing that that envelope as far as you can, if you like. Are there fundamental constituents of nature? Um, and if so, what are they? And if so, what are the forces between them and how do they then combine to build the world around us? And the standard model, in a nutshell, is our best answer currently to that. Okay, that's what it is. It, it lays out what are the fundamental constituents of nature? What are the fundamental forces? How do they behave, and how does that lead to? You know, well, I mean, the electron is one of the fundamental. It's a it's a fundamental player in the standard model. It's one. It's one of the. It's one of the um, the fundamental constituents of, na of nature. And um, the quarks inside protons and neutrons are also fundamental players. And then the the force of electromagnetism, which is um, carried by photons, which are quantum of light. All of these things are players in the standard model, and the standard model is essentially a mathematical formula in the end um, that lays out how these things relate to each other and how they therefore interact and how you predict what they're going to do next and explain the, the world around us. And, it, and it's incredibly successful at doing that. Hmm. Before I continue to, to probe this, I just want to get back to the Zeno's paradox that you yeah. mentioned at beginning and I, this is a bit orthogonal to where we're going but some of the questions some of the discussions i've had on the foundations of physics on this show and particularly quantum gravity we've talked about whether or not space is ultimately discrete or continuous so mm -hmm. causal set theory for instance uh, the fundamental constituents of reality are space-time atoms and space yep. is discrete and since you're in the business of cutting things in half forever and then getting smaller and smaller. I'm wondering if you have uh, a particularly strong opinion on the matter about whether or not these things will ultimately continue breaking down. But I guess this uh, question is distinct from whether or not space itself is continuing. Yeah, I mean, it seems... So I think what we do know is that things look very different when you get small enough and when and we, when you get to very high energies as well. And we can talk in a minute, if you like, about how those are essentially the same thing in a sense. But the And that's actually one of the conceits in the map of the invisible, actually, is you go far east, you go small, and you go up in energy. And they, they, right. So I think what we know is as you do that, the the world changes. So it doesn't make sense to think of things as particles in the same way we think of grains of sand or discrete objects like that you're in the world of quantum field theory and the people that you've been talking to who deal with string theory and quantum gravity and stuff are struggling with the fact that the quantum field theory is what we need to describe the standard model and it can encapsulate infinitely small particles once you introduce things like the higgs it, it has a mathematically consistent picture that 
describes nature and is and is okay um with inf is okay with infinitely infinitely small discrete particles so that zeno's paradox doesn't carry on forever in the standard model in classical um, theories it would carry on forever and the problem is that general relativity which describes gravity which is not accommodated within the standard model is a classical theory so in classical theory space is continuous and you can divide it forever in in the standard model energy and force and the particles are not not continuous they they break that they become quantized at some point and become quantum field theory and that that's a problem we have in physics right we don't know the resolution and the people you've been talking to have been struggling with that it's a long way from at the moment from having ex empirical evidence um that will allow us to make sense of that unfortunately um although you can always hope for a better experiment um but my opinion is that in the end and it is just an opinion no it's not based on evidence my opinion is that um that probably the quantum picture is closer to the to that in the end gravity will have to roll over and become quantized and i think most scientists probably think that too um mm -hmm. like to have an opinion that's probably their opinion um but we don't know to be honest um and uh general relativity is an absolutely beautiful theory that describes a vast array of stuff um but in the end it probably has to give way to some kind of quantum version where the classical version of general relativity that we see in nature is um a, a lower energy approximation of, of an underlying theory so it's just an opinion but that's where i think i think um in the end nature becomes quantized probably hmm. which okay, means the paradox stops right you can't divide the quantum up anymore and then returning to your comment about energy and size uh, perhaps in our macroscopic world we think of energy increasing with size so maybe the the potential energy of a boulder hovering a foot above the ground is greater than a pebble at the the same altitude but this isn't the case with the microscopic or with waves for i mean like i think of yeah uh, radio waves and x-rays x-rays exactly. are much more energetic and it's it's about how the energy is shared out so when you when you make a boulder bigger then you're um you're, you've got more energy because you've got more matter, but you're sharing it out over more and more matter. So the energy per proton or per atom in that boulder isn't growing. You're just mm -hmm. adding more atoms which have energy. So it's more about energy density. It's about concentration at a point. And, um, and with a collider um, in the quantum world, there's a relationship between energy and wavelengths. So there's a, um, the de Broglie wavelength that's associated with any particle is the inverse of the momentum so if you go to high momentum which is like going to high energy then you're going to a shorter wavelength and the key as you as you alluded to you know with, with um, electromagnetic waves is of course if you want to see something really small you need to probe it with a wavelength that is at least as small as the thing you're trying to see otherwise it'll just be invisible or blurred out um, so if you want to see the smallest things in nature you need the shortest wavelengths and if you want to get a short de Broglie wavelength, you need super high momentum. And that's why we need these big colliders, basically, because they're the highest momentum particles we can get in a lab. And that's what. And then when we collide those beams together, we are probing nature with a shorter wavelength than we've never been able to do before. And therefore, we can see the smallest stuff um, in the universe. We can see the quarks and the leptons and 
maybe things inside them if there were things inside them. And empirically, so far, there's no sign of anything inside them. They they look infinitely small, but obviously, it's always a, a working model. You know, you build a better experiment, you might get more data that contradicts it. You mentioned a, a few minutes ago that the standard model of particle physics is couched in quantum field theory. Mm-hmm. And one last sort of conceptual question I want to ask before we moved more toward introducing the search for the Higgs boson is just what the relationship is between the standard model and quantum theory as it was formulated by like the 1920s or so. Because when we hear about things like the the interpretations of quantum mechanics, like I already mentioned, none of this comes into it. We're not talking about the Higgs boson or uh, gravity or anything like that. So I'm just wondering what the relationship is between the two. So one of the relationships is that when quantum, quantum theory initially, I mean, it's it's the theory you need to describe subatomic physics. And that means, you know, really to fundamentally to describe electrons and photons is, is probably the first thing you hit. So why why do atoms emit um, emit light and absorb light with particular frequencies and things like this? And, and that it's the kind of the Bohr atom. It's the fact that there are only certain discrete allowed orbits or, or bound states in an atom. Um, and that just forced people into this idea of, of a, a theory that's kind of probabilistic, and you start talking about wave functions and things. That was then taken together with relativity, really, by Paul. D- so that was the theory of Heisenberg and Schrodinger, I guess. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not a historian, so I'm probably gonna get some of this wrong. But this is the way physicists, it, the way it looks when you're doing an undergraduate physics degree, maybe or a PhD. Um, but that was the kind of world of Schrodinger and Heisenberg, loosely speaking. And then um, you bring that together with um, with Dirac, brought that together with, with special relativity, actually. And um, this is this is one of the, I don't know if anyone's talked about this on here before, this is one of the moments in physics when, you, when you're learning physics and you think, this is amazing. And it really happened. Dirac was trying to write down the equivalent of Schrodinger's equation but rather than using the Newtonian relationship between energy and momentum and starting from there, he started from Einstein's relation in special relativity, so E equals MC squared, essentially, and tried to make it, um, basically had to get rid of the square. If you tried to make that a quantum mechanical equation, he ended up with negative energy particles. And of course, negative energy states, everything would just fall down, 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 down into the lowest energy state and the universe would be unstable. So that had to be wrong. Um, so he, he said it, that's because it's a first order equation. It has a square root. It's really this simple. It has a square root, and with a square root, you get a plus or a minus, and the minus is a big problem. He said, right, I have to make this a, a first order equation. And to do that, you have to pull in some really weird algebra where a times b doesn't equal b times a because otherwise the equations don't work. He kind of forced it. It feels like you look at, you think of the logic. It feels like you're forcing a square peg into a round hole. You're really mm-hmm. You know, contorting your logic. Anyway, it came out with the Dirac equation, which did two things. I mean, it, it worked for a start. It, it brought relativity and, and quantum mechanics together. But it also um, explained what the spin of an electron was, which was a, what we knew about but was puzzling people. This is kind of in the 30s and 40s. 30s, I think. And um, 
And then it predicted the existence of antimatter as well, which no one had even observed, and it just seemed ludicrous. And within a few years, they actually found the antiparticle of the electron. And I know I sound, it sounds like I've digressed a little bit there, but this led to this formulation of quantum field theory where you have the possibility, so it's, a, it's grown out of the Schrodinger, um, Schrodinger's equation or Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, all the stuff of the, the early quantum mechanics. They're still good, they still work for, for a lot of things. But you get this quantum field theory where you have the possibility of creation and annihilation of particles because you've got matter and antimatter. Um, in there as well. And then um, I guess that was then the bedrock on which um, Feynman and Schwinger and Tomonaga built quantum electrodynamics, which is the first kind of complete quantum field theory. So there's a there's a clear progression from this. Um, and all of that still is dealing essentially with electrons and photons. And then to get to the standard model, it's basically taking what Feynman and, and mainly Feynman's language is what we use, but it was independently developed by Tomonaga and Schwinger. And uh, it's taking that language and extending it not to just understand electromagnetism, but also the weak interaction and the strong interaction. And that becomes a standard model. And then at that point, you realize you have a problem with mass, and then you have to bring in the Higgs boson there as well. So the language that they're all discussed in is basically the same language as quantum electrodynamics, which came from Feynman, came from Dirac, came from Schrodinger and Heisenberg. So there's a clear path through in the maths and there's things that are similar throughout them all. And the standard model is really then saying, okay, but there are more particles than just electrons and photons. And this is how you build um, a theory that includes the strong interaction and the weak interaction as well as electromagnetism, and then allows those particles to have mass in the way that works. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Okay. And I think then now we are ready to move to the experiment. So first, what is the ATLAS experiment at the CERN Large Hadron Collider? It, so the ATLAS experiment is um, probably the, the quickest way to grasp what it's for is that it's the, the, the highest resolution, highest bandwidth digital camera that we know how to build. And it's designed to photograph the what happens when these protons collide at the Large Hadron Collider. And we go to a lot of effort to make these protons collide at the highest energies we've ever had. So when they collide, we want to know as much about the results of that collision as we possibly can. And that's what Atlas is there to do. And and I should say, also CMS, our friendly rivals, diametrically opposite on the ring. They're, they're what we call general purpose detectors, designed to just see what happens when these protons collide, basically. And they're, they're sort of cylindrical structures that surround the beam and the two beams and the protons collide. To be honest, most of the protons miss, right? But some of them collide in the middle. The rest go around and have another go. And um, these cylinders, the beam goes through the, the kind of axis of the cylinder. They collide in the center of the cylinder, ideally. And there are kind of concentric cylinders of different technologies then around that. So there's a silicon pixel and tracking detectors that will record the pass when a charged particle goes through. Um, they're, they're semiconductors in general, so the semiconductor has is almost ready to conduct electricity, but a very small perturbation, such as the passage of a subatomic particle with char some charge, will will move an electron from the, con the insulation band to the conduction band and then carry 
the electrical current, because you can read out and then tell that the particle went by. Um, and there's a magnetic field around that, which by the bends the particles according to the momentum. So if you can join the dots on the track of, a, of, a, of a, the passage of a particle, then you can measure the curvature and you can measure its momentum. And then around that, there are calorimeters, which measure energy, as you would guess from the name, I guess, um, which are designed to essentially stop everything. And, and as it stops, it decelerates and it gives off photons. And if you're smart enough in the way you count the photons, then you can work out the energy of the particle that you stopped. And then around that, there's a, the most obvious thing, if you look at a picture of one of these detectors, the most obvious thing is always the muon system. It's only designed for one particle. It's the biggest bit of the detector, it's the outer layer. And it's it's the biggest bit. It's, it's designed to um, detect this one fairly rare particle, the muon. It's like an electron, only heavier. It's um, They're produced in cosmic rays, but they're not very stable. So often they're a sign that something interesting happened in the collision. And um, and they're because they're like the electron but heavier, they don't get stopped by the calorimeters because they're too heavy to be decelerated by the by hitting the electrons in the material, and they're, they're um, they don't interact with the strong interactions, so they don't get stopped by the nuclei much either. So they kind of punch all the way through, but they're charged, so you can measure them on the outside of the detector as well. So that that's basically what they do. Um, and that covers basically all the standard model particles except for neutrinos, which you can't measure at all. Um, that you can measure them if you have billions of them in a huge detector, and there are other other experiments that do that. Right. But if you create one in a collision, your chances of seeing it essentially zero. So mm -hmm. we can kind of deduce that they might they were probably there by the fact that the energy doesn't balance up, the momentum doesn't balance up transverse to the beam. So that's why they're cylinders; they're completely surround the beam. So, yeah, so that's what they do. And a couple to that, of course, is a whole bunch of very fast readout electronics to try it because we have um, 40, 40 million bunch crossings a second. So 40 million bunches of protons per second, every 25 nanoseconds passing through each other. And even each one of those is a border 100 proton-proton um, collisions. So we've got... You know, um, 4,000 megahertz-ish of proton collisions um, coming at a 40 megahertz rate with a lot of data, many gigabytes per collision of data. So doing a data reduction job on that and trying to weed out the rubbish as quickly as you can and keep the things you care about is um, you know, there's, there's basically an office block full of electronics next door to it trying to do that as well. And then it, it gets um, the data gets farmed out all over the world on the computing grid and it ends up on my laptop <laughs> okay there there are a lot of questions there a lot of thoughts one thing that just comes to mind is that neutrinos are quite interesting have have a fascinating history but there are you mentioned how hard they are to detect yeah i think there are like billions or trillions of them passing through us each of us from the sun yep. at any given moment uh, which is just pretty amazing. And they, they hardly ever interact with us. They build these huge, obviously, as, as you know, uh, heavy water containers deep yeah. in mines uh, yeah. to detect them. And it still happens pretty rarely. Yeah, that's right. No, they're amazing. There's the um, kind of famous picture of a guy in a rowing boat going around the Super Kamiokande detector in Japan, which you know, is built underground to do this. And the next big experiment in the U.S. actually is going to fire... Um, 
create a neutrino beam and fire it to um, South Dakota from from Illinois. Um, the, it's called the June experiment, and it's it's going to be pretty cool. Um, and they will be able to measure some small fraction of those neutrinos in that beam. But with Atlas, we have no chance. Hmm. And then continuing to talk for a minute about detectability, you mentioned that the muons are heavier than electrons. Mm -hmm. They're unstable. Uh, they don't interact with the strong force. Mm -hmm. Maybe this, again, just presages some of the things we might talk about when yep. we get to the Higgs boson. But how do these features, so weight or mass, um, instability, uh, interaction, how do all of these relate to detectability more generally? Sure. So um, first of all, the, the lifetime, the fact that they're unstable doesn't really matter to Atlas because they live long enough to travel hundreds of meters. So from our point of view, they're essentially stable. I mentioned that they're not stable. It's relevant that they're not stable because we don't see them in nature. We don't see them appearing in atoms. I mean, we we see them produced in the upper atmosphere when a high-energy particle hits the upper atmosphere from space. But they don't live very long. So they're not like electrons you find in everyday material. You don't find muons in everyday material for that reason. It doesn't really affect their detectability from our point of view. The, the detectability comes about, first of all, they have electric charge, which is a good thing for detecting them. And that means they show up as a, you know, they will show up in our silicon detectors and things. The fact that they're heavy um, and don't feel the strong force have two different effects. So you've got to think think of the calorimeter as it's, it's, it's atoms, it's, it's dense material, because it's designed to slow things down, to stop things. But essentially, an atom is is a bunch of candy floss surrounded by a, a kernel, a bullet, or something. You know, it's a, 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 say a, let's say a steel ball bearing surrounded by candy floss. But the candy floss is the, the light electrons, and the ball bearing is the really heavy nucleus in the middle. If you and the nucleus interacts via the strong force, um, it, it feels experiences a strong force. The candy floss um, only feels the electromagnetic force. When an electron hits that, it's only the size of a grain of sugar, so it will interact with the candy floss and be stopped by the candy floss. When a muon comes in, it's more like a bullet. It's because it's heavy, and it just goes punches straight through the candy floss. It doesn't care about the candy floss. Um, there are other heavy particles called hadrons, um, pions mainly, that will do the same, except that they also feel a strong force, so they have got more chance of hitting the ball bearing in the middle as well because they're interacting by the strong force. The muon doesn't have that, so it take, it won't stop, basically. It will just punch all the way through. If it's really unlucky, it might hit one of the ball bearings, but very, very rarely because it's not feeling the strong force. So it will just bang right through. But if it bangs right through the calorimeter, then it will emerge on the other side, and it's still got electric charge, so we measure the, measure the path of it on the outside as well. And we never stop it. We, can never, we never stop the muons, but we can at least... We can measure their trajectory and their momentum, and if they get through the calorimeter, then they pretty much must be a muon. So the only that's the only thing it would do. It would do that. Hmm. Hmm. Two two last things I wanted to get to just with the Large Hadron Collider, and one is you mentioned uh, CMS, yep. your 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 friendly rival, and the Large Hadron Collider and CERN in general. They're well, the the Large Hadron Collider is is a physical object. CERN is a, a group of people. Mm -hmm. But 
they're both respectively huge. You mentioned that CMS is on the other side of this many kilometer long collider. Just how does the Large Hadron Collider work on, on a soci sociological level? <laughs> I mean, you you have thousands of people working on it. There are multiple experiments going on, different right. groups. Just, I, I don't think people, I certainly don't understand how it all works exactly. I guess the, the key concept is, is the collaboration. Um, so each of these big detectors is run by a collaboration of thousands of physicists from dozens of countries um, and, and different universities and things around in, the, in the, around the world. So it's not like I go out there with my PhD students and postdocs and do an experiment and bring the data home. It's that we built some of this thing in London and other people built other bits of it all around the world. We take it all to Geneva, we put it all together, it all works together and we all get all the data from it all the time. So it's a very collaborative enterprise in that sense. The, all the data from everyone's bit of Atlas is shared, even though Atlas was built by different people all over the world and coordinated at CERN, obviously, um, to make sure it all functions properly and, and works, which is by no small challenge. It's a super high-tech um, jigsaw that has to all fit together perfectly. Um, and then, so Atlas is run by a collaboration of literally 3,000 people. If you look at our papers, it's it's got 3,000 people on the author list of every paper. Um, and the reason for that, I mean, I must admit, there are papers out there that I haven't read that have got my mm -hmm. name on. And that's because I made significant contributions to the experiment. And so, um, and I'm a, therefore a member of the collaboration. And it's not a perfect system, actually, but it's better than, you know, if if we didn't do that, we don't even put them, we, they're all alphabetically as well. So no one gets any individual priority or anything, which confuses the hell out of university administrators and all, <laughs> everyone else. Um, but um it's the only way we can think of of being sure that it will work because we don't want these rivalries to take over and split the collaborations. So, you know, clearly there are a lot of egos and rivalries involved and everyone's got to get their career, make their own career and, and get recognized for the work they do somehow. So I'm not saying it's a solved problem, but but the the reason there are such big author lists is because it takes all those people to make the damn thing work. And then you, you really have to, um, you don't want to spend... It's you know, there's enough work to do, making it work, collecting the data, analyzing the data, collect, making sure the results are right, and publishing them without spending another equal amount of time arguing about who actually goes on the author list and in what order. So we don't do that. Um, but CMS is a separate collaboration. So so in a way, it's uh, um, scientifically it's a guard. First of all, that each experiment's made different technology choices, so it's risk mitigation that if one of them had made a bad choice, then, you know, the other one hopefully would still work and the LHC would not be um, firing away with no detectors working. Um, so that, luckily, they both did work, but they do both have different strengths and weaknesses in some places. Um, also, how to avoid groupthink at some level. You have some people over there keeping you honest and, and may come up with some fancy idea that you hadn't thought of, and there's a room for innovation and, and the stimulation of innovation. In, in that, I think, which is beneficial. Um, but it's, and to be honest, right, Atlas has got a huge, if you look at the map, Atlas is near the main laboratory. CMS is 15 kilometers away in the French countryside. So in the end, the social interactions mostly happen on the main lab in the in restaurant one or, or two in on the CERN lab. And you try and uh, 
There's a lot of gossip there and people really do. I mean, it's friendly rivalry, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, when we were on the verge of discovering the Higgs, people were pretty tight-lipped, I have to say. And you've got to remember there are, there are married couples on either side of the experiment. Oh, really? On side of this divide as well. But everyone was pretty discreet on the whole at that point. Um, and um, it's basically, it's usually quite a healthy relationship. And also, you know, early career scientists in particular will quite often, you know, do a studentship on one experiment, then move to another one for a postdoc and move back and so forth. So it's not that we're, it's not, it's not um, a huge divide. But there is real, there's real different technology and different social um, norms in the two experiments, if you like, and different scientific norms to some extent in the two experiments. And it's, it kind of works in that way. Hmm. Well, now, without any further ado, turning to some of the, the content that you cover in uh, most wanted particle though doesn't the book have a different title in in the uk yeah it's called smashing physics in the uk but i think that was too colloquial for the u.s publisher yeah you have a couple books with different titles in the u.s and the uk which i found interesting i didn't really i guess i've heard that that was a thing that the publishers like having yeah. different names but the, it's kind of the, funny the, the two actually both of them are published by different people in the uk but the u.s publisher the called the experiment they know their stuff I prefer smashing physics, but I can, but as a title, but I can, I can buy their argument that maybe it doesn't work as well for their market. Um, and I must admit, the this one, this map of the invisible, is the that's the UK version, but the, in the US version, it's called Atom Land, and I like it. I prefer the American one actually because, and the, the way it's, I don't have a copy here unfortunately, but it's it's produced like parchment, and it looks like it's kind of what I had in my head um, because I see it as an explorer's map of of mm-hmm. physics or a bit like you know the maps at the beginning of um the maps of middle earth in in um, lord of the rings or something it was that kind of thing was in my head and, and the american edition is kind of truer to that vision which i didn't i couldn't really explain and the, the that they got it so no, it was great yeah no I, I i looked at adam land as well and i saw the cover and the cover looks exactly like that i really liked it yeah i love mm. it and the guy i don't know the the guy who drew those maps based on lots of conversations with me um is um is the guy who did um who, who did the illustrations do you, do you know philip pullman his dark materials yeah oh yeah. yes so chris he's called chris wormel and yeah. he does the the kind of woodcut style illustrations at least for the later philip pullman books that um so i i was very lucky that my publisher my uk publisher found him and he's the perfect guy to draw those maps yeah i am a big fantasy fan and uh i write a lot of fantasy too so i've made plenty of maps and i love making maps and i love looking at maps so, yeah yeah so i love the cover. and I, mm. I also find i don't know if maybe this is not the right time to talk about it but this is the way i think of physics right i'm an experimentalist which means to me i'm an explorer I, i'm happy to yeah. listen to the theories and they they can give you some guidance about maybe where to go look next for something. But in the end, it's the going looking that I really care about. And and that and I found that really interesting. Really, uh, That analogy is, is really actually true to the way I think of my job. That's what I do. That's my, I'm a researcher, and I think of it as being an exploration. And, and so the maps are really very apt for that. Uh, I also... Yeah. There was another reason I liked it, actually. I used to write a, a blog. I still write a blog very occasionally, but I used to write a blog for the Guardian newspaper in the UK. Um, and uh, 
I discovered from that, from the kind of blog style of writing, that you can explain some really quite complicated concepts if you put enough effort and time in and if your readership is engaged and really wants to listen. Um, but then people have a real problem working out how they all relate to each other. So each and any individual post, might they might understand a thing, but they've not. But then I realized what I had as a physicist was a essentially a map of where all the, where all these things sit, all these different concepts sit in the understanding of physics. And I thought then also the map idea comes to the fore again then because you you learn a little a little new. No, a little nugget of, of interest about a physics, about a Higgs or about an electron or about a neutrino, but you don't have an overall picture of, of the standard model or of, of physics in general. You don't have anywhere to put that information. Where And I realize what I'm doing is I'm, I'm basically zooming in on bits of this map and explaining them, and I have the map in my head. So maybe I should try and give people an idea of what the map is, and that's partly what the book's for as well. I like the idea of things like cosmic strings, maybe being like little serpents in the sea of a yeah. medieval map or something like that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So maybe here be dragons or maybe not, you know, we have to go and look yeah. and see. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, before we get to the uh, empirical discovery of the Higgs boson, mm -hmm. I, I'd like to start with the theory. Okay. Just, how was it found theoretically? Right. Um, so th this dates back to the 60s, like before I was born, never mind before I was a physicist. And it's to do with this idea, again, back to this, you know, the divisibility of matter. And, and can you build a theory um, that will accommodate infinitely small particles? Because in principle, that means you know, infinities are uncomfortable in nature, right? So an infinitely small particle means infinite energy density on the face of it because it has some energy. And if it's just, you know, it sounds like a black hole, right? It sounds, it sounds terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how do you build a theory like that? And as the maths of this was developed, um, and again, back to QED, actually, um, quantum electrodynamics, it was, um, you, there's a property called renormalizability, which means, which can, is a way of removing these infinities. Uh, but it only works if the theory is based on a symmetry. Uh, symmetry is called gauge symmetries, technically, but it, it doesn't really matter. The point is, there's a mathematical principle, which is actually very beautiful and elegant, that says symmetries in nature lead to forces. In the same way, there's actually Noether's theorem that some of your listeners may have heard of, where there's a relationship between conserved quantities and global symmetries. There's also a relationship between um, between local symmetries and the forces of the standard model and it's a generalization of that actually which Feynman and others came up with so that was a neat trick but it doesn't allow the um the force carrying particles to have mass so as soon as you introduce a mass term it breaks that symmetry so that was a problem that people were wrestling with in the 60s um, and actually, they thought, and I got told this by Peter Higgs, actually, because I wrote I wrote something wrong in The New Scientist, and he said, that's a great article, but um, they were not even thinking about the standard model, really. They were th the, the, In the end, the Higgs mainly applied to W and Z bosons, which you can come to later, but they were thinking of particles called pions, which are not even fundamental particles, but they, it was nevertheless, they were trying to think in sort of in the abstract because it seemed relevant. How would you build a theory with massive force carriers? Um, and they couldn't do it, and it looked like they would need to at some point. 
Um, and there's a neat trick which condensed matter physicists had already used called spontaneous symmetry breaking, where you have a theory, a theory that's completely symmetric, um, but the ground state, the lowest energy state, is not. So you can. This is why people talk about wine bottles sometimes with with the Higgs. So this shape at the bottom, the Mexican hat thing as well. Sometimes the, the the shape of the bottom of a wine bottle with a lump in the middle. If you imagine a marble in the wine bottle, and you shake it up, and it's got lots of kinetic energy, it it's, it can be anywhere in the bottle. It's completely symmetric. The whole thing is symmetric around the middle of the bottle. But if you stand it on the table and let it settle it will go off to one side and then the, the ground state when it stopped moving is no longer symmetric. It's broken the symmetry by moving off. So that was the trick they were hoping would work, right? You could keep the, the gauge symmetries, which makes the infinities go away, and you could have massive particles because the ground state was asymmetric and had this spontaneous symmetry breaking. And that works in condensed matter. But it doesn't work uh, relativistically, and it doesn't work um, when you... Um, it, the problem with it is it produces a bunch of massless particles called ghost and bosons, which just don't exist in nature. So this was, this was the block that they were dealing with in the 60s. And um, what Higgs and Broughton Engler, who were working independently in Belgium, also noticed was that in the presence of another gauge theory, and in this case, the weak, well, they, they were looking at in when you have spontaneous symmetry breaking and the gauge theory together, they look like two separate problems, but they actually solve each other. So they, they worked out that if you have um, a gauge theory there with massless particles and you have a spontaneous symmetry breaking going on at the same time, then the um, they interact with each other such that the massless particles that were the Goldstone bosons become the extra bits of the other particles that you need in order to give them mass. And it all kind of works out very nicely. And what it boils down to, right, is is that um, the mass of the particles, all the, all the fundamental particles, is not a property they have intrinsically of themselves. It's they're something they have with in, by interacting with this new field, which we call the, the Brout-Englert-Higgs field, if you like. Um, and it's the interactions with that, that that give them mass. The particles themselves in the absence of that field would be massless. But that field is everywhere because it's it's like the the it's it's the nature has this spontaneously broken symmetry. It's what we call a vacuum expectation value, which is like the displacement of the marble from the middle of the bottle. It's not zero, it's not in the middle of the bottle, it's displaced. And that displacement is the equivalent of saying that there's this new energy field filling the universe and by interacting with that um that's how particles get mass mm -hmm. so to bring that home so that was kind of sitting there as as a necessary ingredient of the standard model and it and it um turned out to be you know to be needed to be as the data accumulated through the 60s 70s 80s 90s became more and more obvious that this thing had to be out there somewhere or else everything we were thinking of was wrong and um Coming back to the kind of empirical nature of this, you think, how would you detect whether this is right? I mean, you, you basically invented this whole this whole new field, filled the whole universe with it, um, which is great for a theorist, if you like. But um, what's the and you've done it essentially just to make sure the maths works out okay. 
but can you get some empirical evidence this is right? How would you know this field is there in the universe, right? And and the um, the best analogy with that is how would you know there's air in a room, right? So there's the room I'm in, there's air in this room. Um, you can tell it's there because um, when I'm speaking to you, I'm making waves in it. I'm making pressure waves, which is sound waves. And I go into the microphone and then technology takes over. Um, if there was no air in the room, there's no background field, um, pressure field, if you like, in the room, then you wouldn't be able to hear that. And that's a very good analogy for what we're doing at the Large Hadron Collider. So if this background energy field, this background quantum field is present in the universe, then if you hit it hard enough, you can make a wave in it. And because it's a quantum field, that wave is a quantum particle, basically. It's an excitation in that quantum field. That's the Higgs boson. So that's why we were so keen to discover it. It's not really that, oh, we've discovered another particle, very good. It's the fact that this is the evidence that that background energy field is there in the universe and that that is what gives particles mass. And so that was the, the kind of breakthrough um, that we were looking for. And it, yeah, no, we, we it took a long time, shall we say. <laughs> hmm. Well, uh, a couple of things. First, you mentioned Higgs correction to your article i think and yeah he also had a I'm just worth mentioning a very positive comment and blurb on your book he did so. no he was a big fan of the book in the end i think it was really nice and he's not very um he doesn't he doesn't communicate a great deal these days he doesn't do email uh, he doesn't answer the phone so i was very kind of i was really pleased to, to that he'd read the book even and, and to get a positive comment from him was just fantastic hmm. and then so bosons are, at least colloquially with us lay people, thought of as force-carrying particles. Yep. So I wonder why the Higgs mechanism is not thought of as a fifth force. Yeah, it's a good question. And in some ways, it is. I mean, it, it, it's an interaction hmm. between particles, which is what we think of as a force. Um, the bos the difference is well the two differences first of all boson actually what it means is something that has an integer angular momentum and yeah. um, the force carriers in general have in have a one a unit of one in some yep. units and the Higgs has zero so so they are different yeah. in that sense I see um, but the reason we don't think of it as a force is because the forces of the standard model. Are, um, are based on symmetries, as I was saying before. They're based on on symmetry groups that you then um, you apply this gauge principle to, and that gives you the force carrier. The Higgs arises through a completely different route. So the mass of the Higgs in the standard model is completely different from the mass of the other forces, and the physics is different because it's not based on a symmetry. The Higgs is kind of added ad hoc with no symmetry behind it, really, whereas the other three arise from symmetries. So in some ways, it's sort of semantic. I mean, the Higgs can be exchanged between particles just like a photon can, so why not call it a force? Fair enough. Um, but there is a reason behind the difference, and it's because of this thing. Some of them are arising from what we call gauge symmetries, and the Higgs boson is not. It's just added on almost ad hoc to explain mass at the end as a separate thing. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, it doesn't actually have any spin either, and, and there's other differences associated with it. Yeah, is the... Higgs particle, the unique boson with integer zero spin? Yeah, as far as certainly in the standard model, yes. And as far as we know in nature as well, yes. Is there Sorry, some... I made the unique fundamental one. There are 
combinations of quarks and things that can have spin zero right. as well. But it's a fundamental one, yeah, that's unique. Is there some particular significance to its spin being zero for the mechanism? Yeah. Um, if it had a direction, then you would have you would break Lorentz invariance. So you would okay. pick out it's everywhere in the universe. Remember, so you would you would then break that break the Lorentz symmetry of the universe, which is underlies special relativity and and um, and the standard model. So yeah, that would be a big problem if it had a, if it had a spin. Mm -hmm. So it really really mm -hmm. had to be scalar, otherwise yeah, otherwise you have a favored direction in nature that is picked out by the spin of the Higgs. And then you said we'd come to bosons later, which we did. But what is the precise connection between the Higgs boson and then the Higgs field? So the, the Higgs boson is essentially um, an excitation in the Higgs field. So back to my analogy of, of pressure and sound, the, the, the mm -hmm. Higgs field is, is the air in the room. And the Higgs boson is a sound wave. So it's, okay. or, or if you prefer closer analogy, um, the ele an electric electromagnetic field in in a room, um, and the Higgs and the Higgs will be the photon, which is a, an excitation in that field. And I know that there was a famous book about the Higgs particle that called it the God particle. Yeah. But is there a good reason for referring to it as the God? I'm not not a particularly theological, like a theological reason for referring to it as the God particle, but is it of such significance that it is worth calling the God particle, at uh, least for dramatic purposes? I mean, there's. I mean, no, it's my correct, it's my actual honest answer. But I can see why it was Leon Lederman, I think, who did that. And and uh, I haven't read the book, so I don't know um, the details. But back then, when it was something that you needed in order to make sense of the standard model, and you had no evidence for whether it existed or not, I can see an analogy with people's lives there, where you think, you know, how do we make sense of the universe? We postulate the existence of God. We haven't got any evidence that it's there or not. But if it's not there, nothing works. And at some level, maybe there's an analogy there with the Higgs because that is the role it played in the standard model. This whole business of the standard model it was constructed as a self-consistent quantum field theory, but it required the existence of a Higgs boson, which no one had any evidence for, Okay, no direct evidence for until now, so uh, until 2014 or whatever, 2013. Um, so I think I can see where where... It was coming from. Um, I must admit, I don't don't like the analogy. And um, given that we now have irrefutable evidence that the Higgs boson exists, which I think we're unlikely to get for God, then it's even less appropriate than it was when Lederman um, uh, wrote it down. But um, but that's probably where it's coming from. So in the sense that you needed it to make sense of a lot of other stuff. Um, some people need God to do that, I guess, and that maybe that was the. Um, the analogy they were drawing on and speaking of analogies uh keeping in mind some of our listeners for whom the more accurate microscopic level description of how the higgs field and boson work if it might have been over their head which is entirely possible i'm wondering if you have a 
a macroscopic analogy for how we can think of the Higgs boson as working. Something I've heard in the past is that we can kind of think of it as the field uh, producing a drag on objects that pass through it, and that gives them mass. But I'm wondering if anything comes to mind for you. Yeah, I know what comes to mind. So when when they, um, they were arguing in the UK about whether we would actually fund the Large Hadron Collider, which is while I was still working in Hamburg, but um, the minister at the time put out a competition with exactly that question. So can you explain it? I've got a degree in, I don't know, probably politics and philosophy and economics. Um, can you explain it to me? Um, what what this Higgs is for and why you care. And um, a, co- a colleague, a senior colleague of mine at UCL actually came up with the winner of this competition, got a bottle of champagne out of it um, to explain to the minister, <laughs> a guy called David Miller, who's retired now, but it's a really great analogy, I think, and it's still the best one I can think of as well. So imagine, a, this is Margaret Thatcher, by the way, was uh, the, um, I don't know the average age of your listeners, but she was a prime minister in the 80s when I was growing up as a kid. Um, and uh, and she was the prime minister at the time, I think, as well. Oh no, it was not quite. No, it was John Major by then. But anyway, digressing. Imagine a cocktail party, um, and uh, someone comes in the room who's not famous at all, and tries to get to the bar. And it's really quite easy to get to the bar because no one cares who they are, and they just cut through and they get to the bar. Then imagine Margaret Thatcher coming into the room. And all the all the politicians want to hack her. They don't want to talk to her. And, and it becomes incredibly hard for her to move around. And if she's going in one direction, she can maybe keep going in that direction. But it's really hard to change direction. And, and so, and that's the the Higgs field is all the Tory politicians hanging around with their cocktails. And the the particle that has mass is Margaret Thatcher, and the particle that has no mass is the one that just no one has heard of and gets straight through to the bar. So that's the the Higgs mechanism in in cocktail land. <laughs> And then you can even get the Higgs boson out of that as well, because then you imagine someone peeks their head around. Thatcher's not there yet. Someone peeks their head around the door and says, she's on her way. And, and then and then this little knot of gossipers forms and says, yeah, she's on her way, she's on her way. What do you say? And this blob of, of higher density people kind of moves around the room as well. And that's a, an excitation in the cocktail party background, which is the Higgs boson movie too as well. So I mean. So obviously this analogy too much British politics involved in Yeah, no, is the the blob of people one boson or is each person a boson? No, no, the blob is one boson. The boson is the 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 excitation, so the wave if you like, the wave of of, um of dense the wave of density of people going through the room, if you like. And the the bigger the blob then the more excited the boson maybe? Yeah. That's right. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and so we can easily grasp the role that the Higgs boson plays in everyday life since it gives my cat mass, for instance. But on a much larger scale, is it supposed to have played any important particularly important roles in uh, cosmology for instance say with inflation or in other areas yeah so well first of all i have to say most of your cat's mass is not from the higgs boson oh really yeah it's so um 
the most of the mass in an atom comes from the nucleus, which and most of the mass of the nucleus actually comes from the strong force. Um, so the, it's only the mass of the fundamental particles that come from the Higgs. So your cat would not be a cat if it wasn't for the Higgs. So it's still important. Don't get me wrong, but um, because the electrons all get their mass from the Higgs. So and if if the electrons didn't have mass, then atoms wouldn't hold together. So. It's it's still vital. Don't don't worry. I'm not. But but it's interesting that most of the the mass of the cat is actually in the protons and neutrons, and that's coming from the strong force. Okay. Okay. I need. Um. This is this is a good clarification. But the quarks get their mass from the strong force. No. Sorry. I'm not sorry. Sorry. The quarks get their mass from the Higgs boson. Yeah. And then the quarks then are are held together by the strong force. Yeah. But that and has a lot of binding energy. So, so the strong force, because it has energy, it adds mass. Yeah, basically that's right. Yeah. Okay. So no, that that's a really great, important clarification. I'm cool. glad. Yeah. Um, so, and then you asked about cosmology. Um, so, I mean, there are a couple of things there. One is yes, there will, will have been some phase transition in the universe where which is equivalent of the wine bottle, the marble in the wine bottle, um, cool, you know, cooling down. The, as the universe cools down, this symmetry gets broken. So in the very early universe, this broken symmetry that gives things mass, that means that the Higgs field is everywhere, that's not the case in the early universe. There's so much energy that the, we're not in the ground state, so the, the symmetry is not broken, so everything's massless effectively. Um, and at some point, as the universe cools, we go through a phase transition where the W boson, the Z boson, all the, the electron and so on, um, acquire their mass. That's very, very early on in the universe. And I'm not sure how much, I mean, it has to have happened, otherwise the universe wouldn't happen. But I don't think it's had much influence on the structure of the universe as we see it um, in terms of the, the cosmological measurements that people make from things like the um, the James Webb telescope or whatever at the moment. So. Um, the the other connection that that may be there uh, is a bit more tenuous and speculative. Is that you mentioned inflation? Inflation is also um, probably driven by a scalar boson, like the Higgs. And there may be and there, and you asked earlier, is it the only one in in nature? Well, it's the only fundamental one in the standard model. But dark energy and inflation may also be due to something like this as well. And you have there are models where where they are due to scalar bosons. We don't know whether that's true. We don't know whether they're there. They're certainly not present in the standard model, but they may be present in nature. So one of the kind of more speculative and but interesting and not completely disconnected from observation and pragmatism is one of the areas of, of particle physics and cosmology is exploring whether there are really links between that. Now that we know there really is at least one fundamental scalar boson in the universe, maybe it's connected with these other puzzles. Um, there isn't a compelling, um, you know, neatly done up theory that joins them up, but there are various ideas around about how they might connect. Hmm. I'd like to go back to my cat for a moment. Yeah. Not not just because I find my cat interesting. You're very handsome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I, I'm now I'm curious now about where the mass in the cat comes from. So the fundamental particles that make her up get their mass from the Higgs boson. Yeah. Most of the mass, you said, comes from the strong force. Now, 
is there also mass in the cat coming from say like the electromagnetic interactions in her brain the very very weak gravitational force that is also sort of binding her towards her center of mass are all of these interactions adding additional mass to the cat they all yeah they all at some level contribute because in the end mass and energy are the same thing so anything which is um you know they're, they're different forms of the same thing so e equals mc squared basically so so anything that um, the binding energy of the electrons around the protons also contributes positively or negatively to the mass of the cat um the the any kinetic energy any form of energy that the cat has will be contributing to the mass yeah so hmm. um yeah so that, that that's that's what's i mean the, the way you can i i think of it with the, the protons and the neutrons for instance is you have three quarks, which if you, they're free mass, the mass they get from the Higgs is is, made, is a tiny fraction of the mass of the proton. Um, but they're confined to a tiny space by um, the strong force. And because of that, they're vibrating very, very rapidly within that space because their momentum has to be very uncertain because their position in, in terms of quantum mechanics, right? They're, what we're saying is their their wavelength has to be really small because they're in a small place. That means their energy has to be really high. And it's that energy that is giving the, the mass to the proton, basically, um, via E equals MC squared. So if you think back to what I was saying about what we, we were both discussing, um, wavelength and energy and how they're, in, they're inversely related. And so small wavelength means high energy. The proton is really quite small. So to fit anything into that, then its wavelength has to be really quite small. And that means its energy has to be high, and therefore by E equals MC squared, or if you like, M equals E over C squared, there's a mass term coming in there, and that's where most of the cat mass comes from. But that's true of any interaction. It's the strong interaction is particularly strong, as the name suggests, so that is by far the biggest contribution. But any any kind of interaction in terms of the forces or gravity or or electromagnetism will also have similar kinds of impact on, on the mass. They'll just be a lot smaller. The strong interaction is what dominates. This is obviously not news to you, but uh, it is fascinating to me just how much reality diverges from our folk intuitions. And this is just one great example of it, where for uh, thousands of, probably since the beginning of humankind, at the most basic level, we've probably thought mass is just a function of volume and density, but it is really not this. I mean, that plays some role, yeah, yeah. but that's not fundamentally where mass comes from at all. The the the, the issue is, um, and this again, this is the, the map thing, right? The issue is once you go below the atomic scale, intuition is really poor guide. <laughs> once, mm -hmm. you're, once you're in in the world where quantum mechanics is relevant, our in, our intuition has evolved over um, the lifetime of the species to be incredibly good at a incredibly good guide to things we meet in everyday life. But once you get inside the atom, that's it's not applicable very often. And and right back to what you said at the beginning, it's unreasonable somehow that mathematics is that we we've developed along with our intuition about how to catch a, a tennis ball or or how not to fall over when we're running downstairs or whatever, all of which require huge amounts of intuition about the about classical physics at some level. Um, we've also managed to develop in parallel mathematics, which turns out to be a really good guide for what's going on inside the atom, which is amazing. Hmm. 
But before we return back to CERN and the Large Hadron Collider, I have one question about physics beyond the standard model and the Higgs boson. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether, because I've never heard this before, so I must be wrong with my intuition somewhere, whether the Higgs boson is at all central to efforts at unifying gravity and quantum mechanics, since the Higgs boson is what gives fundamental particles mass Mm -hmm. in the standard model and gravity at least at our macroscopic level is very much connected to mass yeah um but not i mean the answer is no actually really it's not really that central and that's because gravity itself doesn't really distinguish between energy and mass so the 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 fundamental object in general relativity is the energy momentum tensor which has terms that are due to mass but from a point of view from a long way away gravity doesn't care whether your energy is in the form of of protons and neutrons or photons or whatever so if they're if they're over there they're behaving like um, energy that and, and that's what distorts space-time that's what gives that's what creates gravity so it's not really i mean there, there were people that before the lhc turned on it's less less um less less of less interest now I, I think because we found the higgs there were people trying to avoid the need for the higgs by saying that actually gravity comes into play much earlier than we thought um that there are these there are extra dimensions of space-time i think you mentioned them with, before with neutrinos but that you that you you could have had extra dimensions of space-time that gravity is sensitive to but which once you get to the energy of the lhc you can actually probe and uh, these are these dimensions are present in string theory but in string theory, they're way, way out of reach of the collider. But if you brought them down to LHC energy, you could maybe get away without needing a Higgs at all. And people, for the various reasons, people didn't like the idea of the, there being this fundamental scalar. So these extra dimension models, which would have explained quantum gravity at some level, um, would have also been a way to avoid the need for a Higgs as well. But now we've found the Higgs, of course, that's a lot less interesting because we know it's there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's not really central to to quantum gravity investigations, uh, at least at the moment. It's still, I mean, I have to say, on the time scale of physics, it's still an important new piece of information that people are still digesting. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to bet too much money that it won't actually turn out to be important um, in that. Uh, but at the moment, I wouldn't say it's central to those investigations now. Huh. Well, what you just said raises a new question for me. You said it's relatively new in the time scale of physics but it doesn't seem relatively new in the time scale of quantum physics in the sense that it's been theoretically around since the 60s and people have a lot of people have been very certain that it's there so in what sense is it new is it that the discovery a decade or so ago has resulted in more more work empirically that needs to be done yeah it's it's sociologically interesting actually because you're absolutely right that a whole bunch of theorists have been assuming it was there for a long time and the actual knowledge that it's really there has had a big a big impact on the field even though you might have thought it wouldn't have done um and well there are a couple of reasons for that um one is you know people, there's a certain kind of physicist who when there's a real new phenomenon to 
to get your teeth into, then you start doing more precise calculations of it and things, and that and that can throw up more insight. Another is that we didn't, although we they kind of knew it was there, we didn't know what the mass was, and it turns out the actual knowledge of the mass is important and interesting, and might be on the cusp of whether, for instance, the universe is metastable or stable, and maybe that's telling us something interesting about how the universe evolved. Um, Sorry, did you say metastable or matter-stable? Metastable. Okay. I, I, I mean, obviously the universe has to be either nearly stable or completely stable, because otherwise it wouldn't be here anymore. Um, so metastable just means that it's practically stable, but it, in principle, might not be in the very, very long okay. run. Um, so, and the Higgs mass is, is sitting somewhere implying that it's right on the borderline between the two, actually, which is probably insight. There's probably an insight there if we could work out what, what it meant. Um, so those are a couple of the reasons. And the other reason, maybe a more negative reason, um, for it having an impact is that a lot of theorists also thought supersymmetry or some other beyond the standard model idea would show up at the same time as the Higgs, and that just hasn't happened. Um, so now people have to take the standard model a lot more seriously than they did in some ways. I mean, I think a lot. They would, if you'd have asked theorists in, I don't know, 2008, nine, just before we turned on the LHC, um, would what, what do you think will happen? I think most of them would said we will find the Higgs, but we will also find a lot of supersymmetric partners of the other particles as well. And we haven't. And you know, we may still, they may be hiding somewhere a bit less obvious, but it's looking less and less likely. And that's had a huge sociological impact on the field in general, theory and experiment. And people mm. are, you know, there's still some diehards thinking there's still possibilities that supersymmetry will be there. But it's by no, it's nowhere near as monolithically the overwhelming favoured theory that it used to be, and certainly you have to take the idea that the standard model might be a very very good effective theory on its own with no help from beyond the standard model for quite a long quite a range of energy um, or right now it seems it seems to be that way. So that all oh, these yes. things have, have suddenly suddenly changed the way people look at theoretical physics, and and I, I say that they're kind of okay. Ten years is not. It's not that recent. It's not that long ago, but that's that's the discovery that did that, not the not the events since the sixties when the theories postulated it. When it was postulated, it was just one theory idea amongst a zillion others, right? It's only because that's the way nature behaves that it's become super interesting. When you said metastable, you really got my attention. I was thinking, oh, second order stability or abstractability, uh, but not. It's it's kind of less exciting your your metastability, but it does raise the interesting question to me about, or that sort of relates to the the barber paradox. So who who shaves the barber in the town where the barber shaves everybody who doesn't shave themselves? But the question is, what gives mass to the Higgs boson? Oh, the Higgs does though. That's okay. That's it's, okay. The standard model within that is completely self-consistent, and 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 it builds that in as well. This is the amazing thing, right? We've got this completely self internally consistent theory now, which doesn't explain dark matter or dark energy or gravity, but but within its own purview, per, per it's completely self-consistent and doesn't need anything else to help it out. It's kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. The 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 stability just to, just to be uh, maybe it's worth just saying a little bit another word about that. So we. We're saying I talked about the wine bottle, and you've got the rim of the wine bottle, which is a local minimum. 
where the the marble will end up, and that's where the universe is now. And when when I when we talk about whether it's stable, metastable or stable, if that's really a global minimum and really the lowest point the marble can ever get to, then that makes it stay really stable. But if the wine, maybe it's better to go to the Mexican hat, so it's like that kind of thing instead. If the hat has got another lip down here with a lower vacuum and we're in a kind of local minimum, but actually we could tunnel through to a different minimum, there's another global minimum somewhere else. That's what I mean by metastability. And and it means the universe could could at some point tunnel through to a different um, vacuum, a different, a different minimum. Um, but we know that whatever, if that happens, it has to be far enough away that the probability is so low that it hasn't happened in 13.8 billion years. So it's not, it's not going to affect our lives in any way. But from the point of view of how did the universe evolve and why is it the way it is, it might be a big clue as to what's actually going on. Um, it's the, the, um, the, the other thing that, that the model for this is that why are sand dunes always got the same angle? Why do they always form at the same angle? That's because that's the cost between stability and instability. The, the sand piles up until it falls down. And in the end, that leads you to one angle for a given kind of sand then you always have the same slope of a sand dune. Because if it was any steeper, it would fall down until it was that slope. And if it was any shallower, the sand would get piled up on it until it was steeper. And in the end, it, it settles at the point where it's just about stable. And it looks like maybe the universe did that at some point. And, and that may mm. be a big insight into what's going on. The cat can well, yeah. this stuff, you see. <laughs> yes, yes. The cat wants chicken. The cat's much more interested in chicken. Oh, dear. But... but you the the last thing i want to talk about as we finish was a bit more about what life is like at the lhc or working on lhc data from afar mm -hmm. because you mentioned that at the time uh you cms the other well maybe they were your, your main rivals in this case but people were tight-lipped uh there were spouses on opposite sides of the collider what was or is daily work like at or adjacent to the LHC? It's um, it's very varied depending on your role. So when the time that I spent most time actually at CERN was around two thousand between two thousand eight and two thousand twelve, where and I was leading um, one of the analysis groups there, a couple of the analysis groups, and uh, honestly, it was meetings was what I was doing all the time, just getting people together to make decisions, to to suggest ways forward, to suggest that wasn't the right way forward, to to help um, decide who was going to actually write a paper on a thing that we just, you know. So it was it was really that kind of stuff. Um, meet, meetings about physics mostly. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of physics arguments, but the role I was in then, that's what I was doing. I was running meetings or going to meetings, and, and that was that. Um, if you're a student there um, or a postdoc, probably most of what a lot of what you're doing will be programming and data analysis. And I, actually, I do that now at UCL. Now I'm not running meetings anymore, but that's something you can do remotely as well. I mean, I travel to CERN about once a month now, um, but I spend most of my time in London um, teaching and 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 then writing, doing analyzing data and writing papers. Um, so, but there, you know, you'll spend quite a lot of time in front of your desk, in front of your your computer screen trying to work out why that plot doesn't look right and trying to work out what the uncertainties on it really are and so on. 
and trying to work out why your plot is different from the other students' plot, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And and that carries on all the way through. And then the the that's the kind of data analysis side. But then, you know, these, these experiments take a lot of skill to run. And there are a lot of people working with engineers um, to build the things initially. And that was a lot of what we were doing um, when I joined you know, in the, the noughties, the 2010s um, and, and the 20 zeros. Um, and we were building bits of it at UCL and then taking it out there and trying to test it with the other bits and trying to make sure it all integrated properly and, and that you could get the cooling, the, the heat out and the power in and the data out and, and all the, all that stuff. Um, of course, it's now, it's now running, so the construction is no longer an issue, but it still takes a lot of monitoring and, and, and occasional repair and uh, maintenance and intervention. So there's always people when it's running, there's always people on shifts sitting in the control room, monitoring the data that's coming in, looking for problems, starting it up, closing it down, um, going in, you know, sending someone in to look at a bit of the detector that might have broken. If we can get in, we can't often get in to bits of it because you, when it's running, you can't get inside. Um, so it's very varied what, what what's going on. It depends what role you have in the experiment. And most people do more than one of these roles over the course of the, a career and over the course of an experiment as well. And some of those things you can do remotely. So I used to do data quality monitoring shifts from my office in London as well, because it's all online and I could just I'd just be looking at histograms and if there was a problem then I'd report it at a meeting and people would go and check what was going on. So it's um yeah, there's a it's that that gives you a flavour of the variety of things that people are doing, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and uh honestly from my point of view I don't really ever need to go and touch the experiment these days. Um, but I need to go to CERN anyway just to meet some people. You can do a lot remotely, but you do need to meet people occasionally. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's um, it's hard to establish relationships remotely. It's good. It's easy to keep them going once they're established, but it's hard. It's very hard to actually build a team entirely remotely. I think still. Right. Well, John, thank you so much for this. This has been so fun. I apologize for the the meowing beast toward the kind of end of the episode. Laura didn't show up over this side, to be honest. But I shut the door so firmly. I guess you can't get in. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs>